Hoida! I'm Shan Harris, and welcome to the fourth and final episode in our series that tells the story of Nye Bevan's fight to create the NHS. It's based on the research that was carried out for the audio drama Getting Better, an Audible original. You'll hear some excerpts from this as we go along. At the end of episode three, we learned that with just six months to go, Nye was getting nowhere fast in his battle with the BMA. Fortunately, Nye had better relationships with the presidents of the Royal Colleges. He met the specialists early on at the Café Royal, the same place where he'd proposed to Jenny. The unfortunately named Dr Roland Cockshut said that Nye had the finest intellect I've ever met. Dr Erdley Holland, president of the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecologists, told Nye, You see, Minister, this is a matter of great importance to me, for I am responsible for all the pregnant women in this country. Nye smiled and replied, You're boasting! But it was in the president of the Royal College of Physicians where Nye really found an unlikely ally. (laughs) Lord Moran, you have a patient of some renown, do you not? I am responsible for the health of Mr Churchill, as you know very well. His doctoring I will most certainly leave to you. His liver alone would take up most of my waking hours. (laughs) He's got you there, Charlie boy! (laughs) (laughs) What we mean to say is, if the Royal Colleges are to back this new plan for the National Health Service, what assurances can you give us that our autonomy will be respected and preserved? What did you lend up as a fork? A tool of the state? Instead of the hand that guides it. Precisely. The only assurance I can make to you at this stage, gentlemen, is that I will listen. And I have been. I've heard you ask what the National Health Service is going to take away from you. But we haven't discussed the more salient point of what it might offer you. I shall order us another bottle and a further plate of oysters. And then let's see where the night takes us. <laughs> The president of the Royal College of Physicians was Charles Wilson, Lord Moran, or Corkscrew Charlie as he was known by some. He had been the physician to Lord Beaverbrook and also became Churchill's physician from the beginning of his premiership. Despite Nye and Churchill having their highs and lows, Nye and Moran really hit it off. It helped, of course, that Nye had already made his own famous compromise – allowing pay beds in hospitals and permitting hospital doctors to maintain a roster of private patients if they wished to. Nye would say, I stuffed their mouths with gold. But in return, he got the support of the Royal College of Physicians for the NHS. Nye's fear was that if the prestigious doctors stayed out of the NHS, along with their wealthy patients, a two-tier system might develop. He believed that if the wealthy used the NHS it would never be starved of funds. With Lord Moran as an ally, this was more likely to become a reality. Moran went on to achieve some notoriety in the 1960s by publishing a book about his patient Winston Churchill. In it were medical details that only Churchill's doctor could have known. It was the book that revealed Churchill's struggles with the black dog, the term he used to describe his depression during the war. Churchill's widow, Clementine, naturally wondered how Moran hoped to square such revelations with the traditional view that the doctor-patient relationship was confidential. On the 24th of March, 1948, Moran told Nye, 
The cooperation of the general practitioners could be won if the minister made it crystal clear that no whole time salaried medical service would be brought in ever, either by legislation or by department regulation. Indeed, Moran told Nye that if he achieved that, then the Royal College of Physicians would release a statement saying they could see a real prospect of a peaceful solution to the controversy. Finally, there was light at the end of the tunnel. So long as Moran remained president of the Royal College, he could get the doctors on board. There was just one small problem. Do you see? Sternus vulgaris, starlings, all working together. It's a good omen, Bevan. Eagles fly alone while starlings flock together. Is that Shakespeare? Webster. I shall stuff their mouths with gold. Now that must be Shakespeare. No. That's me. My words and my promise. If you can bring us the consultants, we'll give them what they want. There is one final hurdle. I need to keep the college presidency first. I am likely to be challenged in the upcoming elections and not everyone is as keen on you as I am. You mean Lord Horder? He thinks you're Satan, risen from the pit. Well, he's half right, I suppose. Not that I expected the king's personal physician to be in my corner working-class ruffian that I am. If he is successful, the deal will be off the table. Well, our hope lies in your hands, then. The next hurdle was that every year the Royal College of Physicians elected a new leader. Lord Horder was the King's physician, and he had challenged Lord Moran every year for seven years for the presidency. It was a genuine clash of titans, the King's physician versus Churchill's. Moran had managed to keep Lord Horder at bay in the past, but now Horder represented the opposition to Nye and the NHS, and the election would be more roughly contested than any other. If Lord Horder won, then all of Nye's hopes would go up in smoke. Who is it? That you, Hill? I've just returned home. I was rather expecting you to call earlier. Oh, the night dragged on. He likes to talk. He likes the sound of his own voice. I'm far more interested in how you liked it. Well, he was, I have to admit, unexpectedly charming. Sharper than you think, too. Though he likes to cover it with bluster and buffoonery. And the others? Moran? Well, they seem to laugh a great deal. Uh, He seduced them. I'm not sure. They seemed very agreeable. But did he seduce you? No, Lord Horder, he did not. A typical politician. He thinks a few drinks poured and a few hands shaken and the world is his oyster. (laughs) Well, only if we give it to him. Quite. He's overconfident. More charisma than character, if you ask me. Yes, the Celts are all the same. Full of pomp and pride. And I think we all know where that leads. So, we're agreed. I will manoeuvre things with the Royal College, and you keep the British Medical Association in line. Well, I can. That is to say... I thought you wanted cleanliness and order. I do. Then Anaran Bevin must fall. His crass mouth shut and his true place, back in the pits of Wales, restored to him. He has no business making medicine his business. He is Minister for Health. Not for long. 
The negotiations begin next week? Yes. Well, this Swansea Stalin wants to socialise medicine, but I rather think we will leave him with egg on his self-satisfied face. Easier said than done. When he presents the bill to Parliament, it could become law. And if no medic will support it, how long will that law stand? Or the government that signed it? You think we can beat him? I do. But I warn you, things might need to get a little dirty. Let him present his bill, and then let him face the wrath of the public when every clinician speaks out against it. Uh, Dr. Hill, you need to persuade your doctors that Mr. Bevan is their enemy. Lord Horder was more militant than Charles Hill had been, more determined to fight the establishment of the NHS, more ready to describe it as a system of totalitarianism. Here's Terry Malloy, who plays Horder in the drama, to explain more. Horder was quite literally the king's man. He looked after the health of the monarch, and by extension it felt the monarchy. The embodiment of the blinkers that often come with privilege, even when the person concerned is intelligent and talented, with laudable qualities in other areas. He epitomised the... uh, the thinking and and stance of so many of his generation in that time, within uh, the monarchy, within the the palace, and also within the medical profession, in resisting change and um, standing out against what he considered, uh, as did many in the medical profession, an intrusion into their profession by the government. So Nye had one last hope. He needed Lord Moran to beat Lord Horder in the vote for the next president of the Royal College of Physicians. Let's hear the election results. Oh, that'll be them. This is it. I feel sick. George! Uh, Hello? Uh, Yes. Yes? Thank you. Uh, Yes. And you? Thank you. Goodbye. Well, the Royal College has elected its president. And? Lord Moran, by a hair's breadth. Five votes in it. Yeah, we won. We only blooming well won. We won. Nye? Well, there's a sight I never thought I'd see. Nye Bevan lost for words. Oh, give me that damned speech. (laughs) We have the consultants, senior doctors. And Iron Bevan, I think you have just got yourself a national health service. (laughs) If Horder had won the Royal College would have pulled out of its agreement with Nye and joined the BMA in its resistance to the NHS. Horder had already opened up lines of communication with the BMA GPs and in the weeks and months running up to the appointed day, it was Horder who was cracking the whip and driving the BMA opposition forward. In May 1948, he told a meeting of the Society of Individualists in London that the takeover of medicine by the state, as he described it, would be as big a disaster as the domination of medicine by the church had been in medieval England. In fact, a greater disaster. Because at least the church was cultured. 
It was not a party fight he was having with the Labour government, he said, but, in a way, a religious fight, because Christianity stood for the individual, while politics, as presently represented in this country, stood for totalitarianism. Three months after the opening of the NHS, Horder founded the Fellowship of Freedom in Medicine, which managed to enlist over 3,000 doctors. The aim was to continue the struggle against the NHS in the belief that the battle had not yet been lost and that the spiralling costs of national health would eventually lead to the destruction of the service. The Fellowship, meanwhile, sought to help any doctor who wished to escape from slavery to emigrate to Canada, Australia or South Africa while keeping up its propaganda war against the NHS. Horder lamented that medicine was becoming a branch of the civil service and that British doctors were no longer experts and were now increasingly required to just sit and sign forms. Horder died in 1955, still railing against the NHS, but aware that even the Conservative Party itself was on the point of accepting the permanence of Nye Bevan's great achievement. In that year, the Tory Chancellor Ian MacLeod announced that the NHS had been taken out of politics. That has never been true, of course, but in a sense its existence has been. No politician, at least not yet, would be able to survive a brief for its demolition. Now Nye had the specialists on board, he needed to convince the BMA to hold a second plebiscite. Key to this was making the pledge never to make doctors full-time salaried employees of the state. In addition... As Nick Thomas-Simmons highlights, Nye stressed that the £300 minimum was not designed for doctors in their prime, as there were many opportunities for doctors to earn money. This fixed element of the salary was for new and young doctors to get started. It was also for the older practitioner wishing to ease up in old age. This did mean that Nye had a problem with the left of his party. The Socialist Medical Association's goal was a wholly salaried service, but this was not something that Nye could get through and never wanted to. So, with these compromises in place, in May 1948, with just two months left to go before the entire health service started, the doctors held their second plebiscite. In the interim, the Ministry of Health began sending out the information to patients on how to register for the new health service. All British households received a leaflet proclaiming that the NHS would relieve your many worries in time of illness. Nye was in his element when it came to talking to the public. He loved speaking to anyone and everyone that would listen. And, as you've heard, he'd have crowds in the palm of his hand, rallying them with his quick-witted determination. Here's Mary Robertson, who worked as a children's nanny and remembers meeting Nye in the 1940s. Well... Yes, oh, to be honest with you, as a child I met him because my father was a staunch labour man. Well, you know, he was a very nice man, quiet. Well, at least I remembered him quiet. He spoke to us children as, you know, just as if he would be speaking to his own, I suppose. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Yes. No, I liked him. He was very nice. At the time, Mary remembers paying for the doctor. I think I remember it was 
two and sixpence that you paid the doctor. Can remember? Oh, my mother taking my young sister to the doctor before the national service, and it was always two and sixpence. Two and Soon, everyone could start to see the advantages of the NHS. And that was a boon for people that had children with disabilities. Because no longer did they have to pay for uh, the operations, the boots, the calipers, and all those sorts of things. The BMA began finally to understand that the tide of public opinion might turn against them. They were terrified of being in the same position as between 1911 and 1913, when they fought against Lloyd George's National Insurance Act and the introduction of panel patients. They lost that battle, and their arguments were proved wrong by history. Would they make the same mistake again? And the results of the vote? Of the 54,724 members, 40,622 voted. The vote against the NHS was 25,842. The votes for? 14,620. Nye had lost again. However, of the 20,000 GPs, over 10,000 of them had voted for the NHS a swing of over 7,000 votes and over 50% supported. Nye's strategy of limited compromise had worked and, by their own rules, the BMA could not stand in the way of the new National Health Service. Ah, cometh the hour, cometh the man. Good morning, Prime Minister. Not quite the hour. We still have two days to go. The NHS has yet to fling wide its gates. Ever the optimist, aren't you, Mr Morrison? Herbert and I were just talking about the party rally. I was advising against it. Speeches. Possibly not the best idea at a time like this. You're saying we should unveil the biggest and most revolutionary health provision in the history of the world and hope that no one notices? If you make grandiose promises and the next day your words are printed next to photographs of the walking wounded queued around the block, it will hardly do us any favours, especially come the next election. Nonsense! We shall rally the faithful and enjoy our triumph. If we've earned anything, we've earned that. We, Prime Minister? I will say a few words, of course, but on such an historic occasion it rightly falls to the leader of the country to summarise our achievements. Get the public thinking about the next election. Make hay and all that. Well, if we're doing that, then perhaps I should join you. I I do carry weight with the party faithful, and a few words from me might help I'm sending you to Berlin. Things between the Russians and the Americans are getting sticky. I need you and Ernest out there. You can catch up when you get back. But I... Don't worry. I and I are perfectly capable of setting the tone, aren't we? I will do my best, Prime Minister. You see how modest he is, Herbert? People like that in a future leader... They like that a great deal. Enough doctors were now on board for the NHS to move forward. 
As Thomas Simmons concludes, Atlee and Nye had worked as a perfect combination, the PM's careful management tempering Nye's aggressive style. If Nye had been allowed to continue in an aggressive manner, it is unknown whether we would have a health service today. But Nye's tenacity and drive still got the job done. With this success, Nye and Atlee could look forward to the opening on the 5th of July 1948. The decision was made to launch the new NHS at the Park Hospital in Manchester. <sighs> where to, miss? Beechwood Lane? Armston? I'm told it's near. I know where it is. You do? Pop in. Ah, gosh. Thank you. Just I'm running so late. The train took an age to leave Euston and... Don't worry, miss. It's a bright day. I'm sure Mr Atley will have the trains running on time soon enough. I'll just put my foot on the gas. How is the big smoke? Rebuilding itself, slowly. Likewise here. You see that pile of blackened iron over there? That's what the Luftwaffe did to Manchester United. Oh, dear. I'm sorry. Don't bother me. I'm city. <laughs> Much of Getting Better is set in the Park Hospital in Manchester, a real hospital known today as Trafford General Hospital. But what was the reality for the city's hospitals at the end of the war? We've got a pretty good idea because a report into the hospital system of the North West was published at the end of the war by the Ministry of Health. The authors were Sir Ernest Rock Carling and Dr T.S. McIntosh. It's eye-watering stuff. Practically all the hospitals in the region, they wrote, were short of both beds and wards and seldom have anything which can be dignified with the name of an outpatient department. Many are gloomy and depressing, which can hardly fail to have a discouraging effect on the patient. Operating theatres were a rarity, as were X-ray departments and physiotherapy units. Maternity accommodation was so crammed in some Manchester hospitals that there was not enough space between beds to allow for observation. They concluded, Very few hospitals for infectious diseases can be regarded as satisfactory. Much of the accommodation for tuberculosis is of poor quality. Few of the smallpox hospitals are fit for use. As for Manchester's Park Hospital, this had a number of defects, but it was judged to be one of the better examples in Lancashire. The hospital had actually been turned over to the American army during the war, not to treat war injuries, but as an ordinary hospital for infectious diseases and the like. When it was returned to civilian use in 1946, it had a mere 194 beds, with 70 reserved on a maternity ward. Why did Nye choose to visit it on vesting day? Partly because of its positive reputation, in the sense that it wasn't falling down like many others, but mainly because he was already booked into Manchester that weekend, where he was to address the Labour Party rally at Bellevue Fairgrounds. With this enormous success, Nye had the world at his fingertips, even the opportunity to rise within the party and become foreign secretary, even leader, However, the night before, on the 4th of July, 1948, Nye proved Ernie Bevin wrong. Nye was still his own worst enemy. They condemned millions of people to semi-starvation on the vile and immoral pretext of tradition. What's he playing at? That is why no amount of cajolery and no attempts at ethical or social seduction can eradicate from my heart a deep, burning hatred for 
the Tory party that inflicted those bitter experiences on me. As far as I am concerned, they are lower than vermin! At the party rally, on the day that should have been the pinnacle of his career, Nye made his infamous vermin speech. With a constant barrage of negative press articles and Nye's experience of unemployment during the 1920s and 30s, Nye was beyond angry with the Tories. Churchill and his MPs had voted against the NHS bill over and over again. As Nick Thomas Simmons wrote, Nye was concerned that Attlee was not portraying this as a Labour victory and instead attributing its parentage to all-party inspiration. Nye! What in God's name have you done? What you told me to do. I spoke from the heart. I didn't mean that you should entirely disengage your brain in the process. You've just compared the opposition to rodents. Do you imagine the health service will earn a single comment with the quote you've just gifted them? They've been against us every step of the way, and I cannot pretend otherwise. It's taken you three years to build the NHS, three years to build Labour's power in the minds of millions of voters, and you've lost them with just three words! During the 1950s, Morrison was able to claim that nice speech gave Churchill and the opposition the ammunition they needed to begin a political comeback. Jenny Lee herself defended Nye to the hilt, stating that he never meant to imply Tory voters were vermin. Nye, in her estimation, would always distinguish between the person and the politics. Here's what Nye actually had to say about the Tories in 1959. The Conservatives themselves are not bad people. What separates us from them is not that we are good and they are bad. We have all much of a muchness, goodness in us and badness in us. He simply did not see poverty as inevitable and genuinely thought that the Tories could have done more. The damage, however, was done. The day following the speech, Nye went to the Park Hospital, where he symbolically received the keys to the hospital and finally opened the National Health Service. An honour guard of nurses. Well, it should be me applauding them. Thank you, Mr Bevan. No, thank you. (laughs) Thank all of you. This way, Mr Bevan. Just through here. He spent an hour or so looking round and was widely photographed at the bedside of a young teenage patient called Sylvia Diggory. There was much apprehension on the 5th of July, 1948. Michael Foote states that on the day itself, three quarters of the population had signed up under the scheme. Two months later, 39,500,000 people, or 93%, were enrolled in it. A few months after that, the figure had risen to 97%, where it has stabilised ever since. Given the two plebiscites suggesting a boycott of the service by doctors, no one knew how many doctors would actually turn up. George Godber recalled in his 1972 book, The Health Service Past and Present, that there were predictions of utter chaos. Other witnesses remember wondering whether any patients would turn up at the surgeries on the day. What was the point when there were no doctors? Others expected to be overwhelmed on day one, 
Everybody would turn up because it was free. One Birmingham GP actually put up barricades. There were inevitably teething problems, but if you just stop to imagine what was achieved, just in terms of administration, it was truly remarkable. The first year of the NHS, to the satisfaction of its critics, saw an astonishing overspend. The first year's estimate had been £268 million. The actual cost was £373 million. The second 12 months estimate of £352 million was also smashed, with a final reckoning of £449 million. The Cabinet met to discuss this, and Nye's enemies had a field day. The other spending departments, particularly Defence, wanted to know what had gone so wrong. But Nye was not disturbed. He talked of the health deficit and said it was not surprising the NHS had gone over budget in its first two years since it was dealing with the accumulated health woes of half a century. But privately he was concerned. I shudder to think, he wrote, of the ceaseless cascade of medicine which is pouring down British throats at this time. A plea was sent out to doctors not to overprescribe. Meanwhile, Attlee took to the airwaves and asked for more restraint from the population in general. The estimates and the reality began to converge after 1950, and by 1951, the overspend was down to less than a million pounds. But in certain minds, the NHS had failed, and the alarmists amongst them thought that without radical reform, it might even bankrupt the nation. In 1951, a cabinet row about charging for teeth and spectacles culminated in Nye's resignation. He felt that the money was being skimmed off the health budget in order to pay for the Korean War. Characteristically, he reached for Shakespeare, Titus Andronicus, and declared, The health service will be like Lavinia, all the limbs cut off and eventually her tongue cut out too. When Nye left government, medical opinion was split. The Lancet paid homage to the man, but the BMJ was as spiteful as ever. Here's Catherine Drysdale, who plays Dr Eva Calloway in the drama, to quote what they said. His vicious attacks on the profession, his attempts to sow discord, and his rudeness in negotiation would never be forgotten. He never rose above being a clever politician, and at critical moments he failed to become a statesman. He had done his best to make himself disliked by the medical profession, and by and large, he had succeeded. That judgment has not stood the test of time, and, it's fair to point out, did not survive long in the BMJ either. Most doctors today see Nye Bevan as the public sees him, and as even Charles Hill saw him towards the end of his own life, that is, as a genius. Some supporters of the NHS, and some opponents too, originally believed that the service would become a self-liquidating expenditure commitment, that as people's health improved, they would draw on healthcare less frequently. Nye never quite believed that, though he did expect frontline services and preventative medicine to become the keystones of the system. His vision of the future was of large, well-resourced health centres serving the community, and a few specialist hospitals behind them to mop up what preventative medicine could not deal with. The general assumption, shared by Beveridge and Nye, was that costs would rise until about 1965 and then would remain static. Neither, however, seemed to account for the effect of an ageing population. 
Then again, Nye did not believe healthcare would ever be cheap. We shall never have all we need, he said. Expectation will always exceed capacity. And of course, good healthcare creates its own demand, as do new technologies and advances in medical science. What saved the NHS in its early years were two things. The first was its obvious popularity. The second was the findings of the government-appointed Gillibud Committee into its costs. In 1956, its report gave the NHS a resounding thumbs up. The main discovery was that health costs had actually fallen in relation to GDP since 1949 to 1950. Far from being out of control, there appeared to be a remarkable discipline in NHS expenditure. Here's what Nye had to say about the Gillibud Committee. When MacLeod was made Minister of Health, he appointed a committee of inquiry. The purpose of that committee of inquiry was to give him an excuse to attack the health service. That was the purpose of it. After all, the health service was a pioneer service, that's to say, nothing like it had ever been done before, and probably it was full of mistakes. So he appointed a committee called the Gillibord Committee to find out the mistakes. And it sat for three years. It probed the health service, probed its financial structure, probed its administration. It took a stethoscope to it. It took swabs from it. <laughs> it took blood counts from it. <laughs> it uh, examined it for, 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 for muscular trauma. It did every conceivable thing to find out what was wrong. And after three years, they made a report. They couldn't find anything seriously wrong. <laughs> but of course, uh, they had to leave it alone, therefore. A direct frontal attack upon the health service could not be carried out in face of a verdict of that sort. George Godber called Claude Gillibud, the mild-mannered career civil servant behind the report, a first-rate man, but a quiet performer. He probably saved the NHS. The NHS was safe after 1956. Labour had always supported it, of course, but now the Tories started to do so as well. The idea of it being undone was no longer attractive to them. The other great citadels of Labour's post-war state were stormed during the Thatcher and Major years. Nationalised coal in 1984 council house building, the privatisation of gas and electricity, and the selling off of the railways, etc. But the NHS has remained untouchable, at least as an idea. Arguments about finance and funding rage on, and probably always will. But the idea of a universal healthcare system, free at the point of use, and funded by progressive taxation, is now sacred in Britain. Nye's achievement lives on, heading towards its century. Just over ten years after the appointed day, Jenny was worried at how tired Nye was looking on the election campaign trail. The 1950s were gruelling years for them both, but that is the subject of a different story altogether. On the 27th of December 1959, Nye went to the Royal Free Hospital in London for an operation on a stomach ulcer. In his typical style, Nye made sure there was no special treatment in line with his NHS principles. It was a much longer stay than anticipated, and he didn't return home until the 14th of February, 1960. 
Dr. Daniel Davis told Jenny Lee that Nye had terminal stomach cancer. Devastated, Jenny made Daniel promise not to tell Nye. She wanted Nye to be thinking and planning ahead, taking an almost sensuous pleasure in using his beautiful mind to his last moment of consciousness. Nye died on the 6th of July, 1960. In Nye's own words, Oh God, why did you make your world so beautiful and the life of man so short? His memorial service took place at Westminster Abbey. This was unusual for a politician who was not a party leader, but Jenny writes of the love and affection for Nye that came from all corners of the globe. On the 14th of October, 1972, another memorial for Nye took place in the hills between Tredegar and Abu Vale. There, on a site that Nye used for his constituency meetings, there are four stones. The central monolith represents Nye Bevan himself, while the three other stones represent his constituents in Abu Vale, Trader and Rumney. Visitors can imagine Nye pacing up and down, singing, overcoming his stammer and finding that amazing voice. Nye Bevan was a great man. He made healthcare across the United Kingdom a human right, and we thank him from the bottom of our hearts. Some believe we may never see his like again. Let us hope that they are wrong. No, friends, you really must judge people by their behaviour. You must judge them not by what they say, but what they do. You mustn't judge me, you mustn't judge any of us by what we say. Although I think we try to say the truth. But you must judge us by our past. You must judge us by our deeds. By that test I stand. And if the British people are prepared to apply it to all of us, there'll be no doubt about the result on October the 8th. Thank you for listening to our podcast about the fight for the NHS. We hope that we never take it for granted and it keeps getting better and better. Narrated by me, Sean Harris. Written by Ian Haig, Kenton Hall, Mark Hayhurst and Dr. Carol Reeves. Based on the research that was carried out for the audio drama Getting Better, an audible original. Thank you to the Anirin Bevan Society, Nye Bevan's family and the British Library for allowing us to use original recordings of Nye. And thank you to everyone who has made this recording possible. A full list of credits and links for both the audible drama and this documentary can be found at ideahat.co.uk. Before we go, Rod just has one last thing to say. And finally, on behalf of all cast and crew, a limitless thank you to everyone who has ever worked or volunteered for the NHS. You are all incredible. Remember, the NHS will last as long as there are folk with faith left to fight for it. <laughs>